How successful do you think if on your next flight the pilot was getting ready for takeoff and as he made his way down the runway, slowed down every few moments because of something on the, the runway and then sped up again and then slowed down? Do you feel confident that that plane would ever achieve liftoff? Or as we're getting ready to, to watch the Olympics, what are the, the chances of a long jumper bringing home a medal who, as he starts down that runway, pauses a little bit, stumbles, and then picks up his speed again to accelerate, and then slows down again right before his jump? Not very likely to be taking home anything other than maybe a participation medal. See, there are some things that, that just require momentum, don't they? And if momentum is not maintained and if acceleration doesn't happen, then liftoff's never going to be achieved by the pilot and that long jumper isn't going to enjoy much success. And then the individual just finds him or, him, her, him or herself stuck. You ever feel like that, spiritually speaking? Maybe, maybe recently or maybe... Maybe that's the only way that you have ever felt about your, your spiritual growth. That you have been stuck, that you have always failed to be able to, to get to the next level, that limitations have always kept you from growing in your Christian faith. And it becomes this cycle that is extremely difficult for us to, to break. There's a little bit of progress, and then maybe we get comfortable with the progress that we've had, and we take our foot off the accelerator just a little bit. Or, or maybe we struggle mightily in some sin and we end up backsliding and here we are back at square one. Stuck. Struggling to achieve any momentum, any long-term growth in our faith. Well, if you want to get unstuck, if you are interested in, in breaking that cycle, that is the, the prayer that we have as we look through, as we focus on the book of Judges. And we see a similar cycle that the Israelites fell into. And our prayer is that as we look at each judge throughout this series, there will be key takeaways unique to each judge, but also as a whole through this theme of judges that will help us get unstuck and break that cycle. As you look at the book of Judges, they started off on a high note. You look at the very first verse in, in chapter 1, and we're told, After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, Who will be the first to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites? And I want to focus in on that practice that, that shows Joshua had done a good job as a leader. He had showed them the right course of action. The Israelites asked the Lord which is always a good solution to any problem. That's always a great starting point, not an afterthought, not after we have carried out our own measures, but that's the first place to go. And so Joshua taught them, well, they, they sought out the Lord's advice and counsel. The only problem was they struggled to actually live out and to apply what God had commanded them. And so we see in this opening chapter a cycle that is going to recur throughout the book of Judges, it's the same theme, one that involves rebellion, regret or repentance, and rescue. 
And it just repeats itself over and over again throughout the book of Judges. Now, it shouldn't surprise us uh, that things are going to take a turn for the worse if we fail, if we struggle to apply, as the Israelites did, God's directive. And indeed, that is exactly what happened. Later on in the second chapter, uh, we're told how things took a turn for the worse. In verses 2 and 3, the Lord gave them a command. He said, You shall not make a covenant with the people of this land. You shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Now therefore I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your sides and their gods will be a snare to you. See, if there's one way to summarize the first chapter, it, it goes kind of like this. God called this tribe and this tribe and this tribe of Israel to go in and secure their land. The only problem was the same refrain keeps coming up. They failed to completely eliminate and, eliminate and get rid of the heathens, the pagans. So God says, because that's the case, their idolatry, their worship, and your intermarriage with them is going to be a thorn in your side. And that's exactly how things played out. And then less shocking, after God had declared this to be the case, is how quickly everything started falling apart. In the same chapter, chapter 2, verse 10, we're told, after that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. A whole generation, one generation later, that didn't know the Lord anymore or what he had done for them. Do you think that it doesn't matter to take your faith seriously? Do you think that it's not going to be a big deal if you don't consider your relationship with Jesus to be the most important thing in your life. If you think that getting by through this life, treating your relationship with Jesus the way that we treat a spare tire, it's something that's important and that we want to have in the trunk when we absolutely need it, but by and large, we don't really even give it a second thought. If you think that's going to be okay, you've got another thing coming. And in fact, this is exactly what is happening in our world today. And let me go a step further. This is exactly what is happening in the church today. Not just this church, but, but Christianity in general. And that's a harder pill to swallow. It's easy for us to lament the direction the world and our nation is going. And it's frustrating. And it's discouraging. And we look at today, days like today, the 4th of July, and we look back and say, boy, our freedoms, they're, they're just slowly dwindling slowly being ripped away from us. But it's too easy. It's too easy if we want to make it about the world and not own up to the, to the faults of the blame that, that we deserve as the church for treating our faith like a spare tire. And, and not just settling for maybe passing on to our, our children that they know Jesus, but instead strengthening them and saying, what if, what if we tried to raise their level of Christian faith and sanctification and their knowledge of Scripture and their relationship with Jesus to a level that far surpasses ours? But instead we find ourselves in a very similar cycle that the Israelites did. We start strong. Things are going well. And then we backslide or we take it easy. Or God gives us a direction or a promise in his word and we, 
we either ignore it or only partially obey it. And we wonder, what's wrong with the next generation? And we wonder, what's wrong with our world today? And we fail to see, we are. Because we have acted no differently than the Israelites in this time of judges. So the hope and the prayer is that we would not just learn something from this time in Judges, but that we would actually apply it, that it would make a difference, that we would commit to taking these truths and implementing them in our lives, not in one ear and out the other, but doing something with this knowledge that we gain in our study of Judges. As we pick it up in chapter 4 and focus on Deborah, we already see this same cycle repeating itself. We, we didn't cover two previous judges, Othniel and Ehud. Uh, they're interesting accounts by all means, so go back and read them in chapter 3. But you already see that cycle playing out. God had given rescue through Ehud and rest for a time for his people. And so quickly they began to backslide and rebel and get comfortable with the heathen nations around them. So, what did God do? Let's pick it up with chapter 4 then. In our text today, we're told at the beginning, After Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, a king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisra, who lived in Harosheth Hagoyim. Because he had 900 iron chariots and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord, for help. So you see the specifics, but you also see the general cycle playing out as it does for this period of time, about 300, 350 years. Remember that this was after Moses and Joshua, leaders that God had specifically designated to lead his people out of Egypt and begin to embark on, on that promise of deliverance in the, in the promised land. And it was before the time where God had even anointed his first king, Saul and David, and so on. So this period of 300, 350 years, we see the same cycle bearing out already again in, in chapter 4. And God introduces us to their enemies, uh, Jabin, and really the, the star of the show, the, the bad guy in this account, is Sisera. Now, now to think of the advantage that Sisera had over them, that would be the equivalent today of a bunch of foot soldiers taking on a battalion of tanks. There'd be no contest. There'd be no challenge. So Sisera had his way. He was wreaking havoc with the Israelites. But he would find that through divine intervention, when, when God chooses to come to the deliverance and rescue of his people, he would stand no chance against them. And this is where we're introduced then to Deborah stands out not just because she is a female judge, which stands out all the more in a patriarchal society, for sure. You read through the Old Testament history and God had established that men were to be the head of the household. That was how the faith was going to be passed on. They were called to lead. But we see in this account what happens when they drop the ball. There's no shame at all, God says, in, in raising up a woman to do the work that a man was failing to do in that case. So he uses Deborah. We're not told much about her. She's a prophet. She's married. But she obviously had a measure of wisdom. And God had instilled her to, to be the leader, the judge, not 
the way that we think of a judge in a courtroom necessarily, but people did go to her for counsel, for advice, for direction, and she provided it. And it was through this judge, Deborah, that she gave the direction to her commander, Barak. And she assured him, she gave him the promise. She said, the Lord told me that you are to go do battle with Sisera and he will give you victory. Now here's why Deborah looks so good. It's because she stands in stark contrast to Barak, the man that God had called to lead. Listen to his response in the same chapter, chapter 4, when she tells him that the Lord had already promised victory. In verse 8, Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. God had given the promise. God had already declared victory. It was as good as done. All Barak had to do was follow through with the orders. And instead, what does he do? He looks for some added incentive, some other support to make good or to validate the promise from God that Deborah had just shared with him. The sure confidence of victory wasn't enough for Barak. He needed something more. So he looked to Deborah. So that's all well and good, that promise from God, but I'm not going to carry it out unless you go with me. I mean, that speaks to the confidence he had in her for sure, but it doesn't paint him in a very good picture, does it? Not at all. So, Deborah is leading. She gives this direction to Barak. He says, I'm only going to go if you go with me. Do you realize, do you realize how backwards his response was and his whole attitude about this whole thing? I mean, think of a situation in your life, in your past, that has been extremely difficult, a challenging situation. You found yourself stuck, maybe to the point of saying, the only way that this is going to change, the only way that something good is going to come out of this is if God works a miracle. Is if somehow, through divine intervention, God steps in and makes good on this. You've experienced that. And, and here, Barak had that very promise from God. He had the divine intervention. God already told him, I'm going to intervene and I'm going to give Sisera and all of his chariots into your hands. But that wasn't good enough. He wanted human intervention. He wanted something that was going to be a confidence booster to add to and to aid God's promise to make it just a little bit more palatable. But as we'll learn, hopefully, today, God's promises, they don't need you and me, or any earthly, worldly circumstance to hold them up. How often don't we wish that we were more like Deborah and less like Barak? God's word is, is filled with promise upon promise upon promise of the things that he has done and he has done and he's going to do. But how often don't we find ourselves looking to those promises and saying, yes, I will cling to it, I will believe it, I will trust it, provided there's some other confidence booster. Okay, I, I know that the Lord is going to deliver me and protect me, but I need the confidence booster of a doctor's clean bill of health to actually believe it, to hold to that promise. I know that, that God says that, that Jesus reminds us that the Father, he dresses the lilies in the field that he feeds the birds without our, our knowledge or even a second thought so I can be confident that he's going to take care of me as well. But And yet I need the confidence booster of a, a steady, secure job and income 
to actually believe that promise. And God says that I forgive your, your sins unconditionally. Heaven is my gift to you by grace through faith alone. And yet we deceive ourselves with this false confidence booster that as long as I'm doing a good job or trying my hardest, then I can be confident of heaven. Do you see how backwards we have it? This is filled with promises of divine intervention, and yet they're not good enough for us. Like Barak, we say, give me some other indicator. Give me something that is going to make it more certain, this promise, more reliable, more trustworthy. Shame on, on us for following that same course of action instead of letting God's promises stand alone because they are God's good and gracious promises. Now, Barak learned that God made good on his promise. He did deliver Sisera into his hands. And he also made good on the promise that the glory wasn't going to be his. Listen to how that battle played out as Judges chapter 4, verses 15 and 16 record. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera abandoned his chariots and fled on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harasheth Hagoim. All the troops of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Don't gloss over that last phrase. Not a man was left. Not only did God grant the victory that he promised, but not in a, a, some meager way that they just scraped by or barely eked out the victory, they absolutely annihilated the superior force. And if you read through, and I encourage you this week to read through the next chapter too because it's a song of praise and victory that Barak and Deborah sing, and it also gives us a little window into how God carried out this deliverance. See, Sisera intentionally wanted to do battle on the plains because that gave his chariots iron-reinforced as they were an advantage. But God turned the tables on him. That flat area also was on the basis of a, a river. So whether it was some flash flood that God caused or some other means, it becomes clear that water basically nullified their superior advantage of chariots. So God wiped out an entire army, emphatically keeping his promise and also keeping his promise that the glory wouldn't belong to Barak, but by Jael, a woman who ended up being the one that would finish off Sisera. Now we might experience the same humbling sometimes for our failure to believe and trust in God's promises. But what isn't going to change in any scenario, in any situation, is God's decision to deliver. Because that is who God is. God delivers again and again and again. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. He doesn't give us what we deserve. He doesn't turn his face from us. He doesn't withhold his grace from us. And now think about it. If, if God ever waited to keep his promise until you and I, until we had 100% confidence or trust in his promises, he wouldn't act on hardly any of them, would he? No, no, God acts, God delivers, God keeps his promises despite our doubts because God is a God who delivers. In baptism, he delivers. In the Lord's Supper, he delivers. 
in and through and by his word again and again and again, he delivers, always making good on his promise that his forgiveness is never going to flow down to a, a trickle, but it is always going to overflow in abundance in our lives, no matter how many times we have questioned or doubted his promises, no matter how many times we have looked to worldly circumstances or human beings to bolster up God's promises. Still, God delivers. So if we are to break this cycle and expand beyond the limitations maybe that we've experienced in the past of our spiritual growth, take our faith to the next level, let this key takeaway be applied in our lives. Let us take God's promises at face value because they are God's promises, not because there's some worldly circumstance that make his promises more palatable or believable, but because they are God's promises. And your God, your gracious God, filled with unconditional love and grace and mercy for you, always delivers. Amen.